Abraham Lincoln, Ten Anecdotes Being the appendix to Speeches and Letters of Abraham Lincoln, 1832-1865, by Abraham Lincoln, edited by Merwin Rowe, 1907. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Number 1. Lincoln's Entry into Richmond the Day After It Was Taken As described at that time by a writer in the Atlantic Monthly. They gathered around the President, ran ahead, hovered about the flanks of the little company, and hung like a dark cloud upon the rear. Men, women, and children joined the constantly increasing throng. They came from all the by-streets, running in breathless haste, shouting and hallooing and dancing with delight. The men threw up their hats, the women waved their bonnets and handkerchiefs, clapped their hands and sang, Glory to God, glory, glory, rendering all the praise to God who had heard their wailings in the past, their moanings for wives, husbands, children and friends sold out of their sight, had given them freedom, and after long years of waiting had permitted them thus unexpectedly to behold the face of their great benefactor. "'I thank you, dear Jesus, that I behold President Lincoln,' was the exclamation of a woman who stood upon the threshold of her humble home, and with streaming eyes and clasped hands gave thanks aloud to the Saviour of men." Another, more demonstrative in her joy, was jumping and striking her hands with all her might, crying, Bless the Lord, bless the Lord, bless the Lord, as if there could be no end to her thanksgiving. The air rang with a tumultuous chorus of voices. The street became almost impassable on account of the increasing multitude, till soldiers were summoned to clear the way. The walk was long, and the President halted a moment to rest. "'May the good Lord bless you, President Lincoln,' said an old negro, removing his hat and bowing, with tears of joy rolling down his cheeks. The President removed his own hat and bowed in silence, but it was a bow which upset the forms, laws, customs, and ceremonies of centuries. It was a death-shock to chivalry and a mortal wound to cast. Recognize a nigger! Fa! A woman in an adjoining house beheld it, and turned from the scene in unspeakable disgust. Number two. You don't wear hoops, and I will pardon your brother. The following nine anecdotes were related by Frank B. Carpenter, the painter, who, while executing his picture of the first reading in cabinet council of the Emancipation Proclamation, had the freedom of Mr. Lincoln's private office, and saw much of the President while he posed, and whose relations with him became of an intimate character. A distinguished citizen of Ohio had an appointment with the President one evening at six o'clock. As he entered the vestibule of the White House, his attention was attracted by a poorly clad young woman who was violently sobbing. He asked her the cause of her distress. She said she had been ordered away by the servants after vainly waiting many hours to see the President about her only brother, who had been condemned to death. Her story was this. 
She and her brother were foreigners and orphans. They had been in this country several years. Her brother enlisted in the army, but through bad influences was induced to desert. He was captured, tried, and sentenced to be shot. The old story. The poor girl had obtained the signatures of some persons who had formerly known him to a petition for a pardon, and alone had come to Washington to lay the cause before the President. Thronged as the waiting-rooms always were, she had passed the long hours of two days trying in vain to get an audience, and had at length been ordered away. The gentleman's feelings were touched. He said to her that he had come to see the President, but did not know as he should succeed. He told her, however, to follow him upstairs, and he would see what could be done for her. Just before reaching the door, Mr. Lincoln came out, and, meeting his friend, said good-humouredly, "'Are you not ahead of time?' The gentleman showed him his watch, with the hand upon the hour of six. "'Well,' returned Mr. Lincoln, I have been so busy to-day that I have not had time to get a lunch. Go in and sit down, and I will be back directly." The gentleman made the young woman to accompany him into the office, and when they were seated said to her, "'Now, my good girl, I want you to muster all the courage you have in the world. When the President comes back, he will sit down in that armchair. I shall get up to speak to him, and as I do so, you must force yourself between us and insist upon the examination of your papers, telling him it is a case of life and death, and admits of no delay. These instructions were carried out to the letter. Mr. Lincoln was at first somewhat surprised at the apparent forwardness of the young woman, but observing her distressed appearance, he ceased conversation with his friend, and commenced an examination of the document she had placed in his hands. Glancing from it to the face of the petitioner, whose tears had broken forth afresh, he studied its expression for a moment, and then his eye fell upon her scanty but neat dress. Instantly his face lighted up. "'My poor girl,' said he, "'you have come here with no governor, no senator, or member of Congress to plead your cause. You seem honest and truthful, and you don't wear hoops.' and I will be whipped, but I will pardon your brother. Number 3. His Joy in Giving a Pardon One night Schuyler Colfax left all other business to ask him to respite the son of a constituent who was sentenced to be shot at Davenport for desertion. He heard the story with his usual patience, though he was wearied out with incessant calls and anxious for rest, and then replied, Some of our generals complain that I impair discipline and subordination in the army by my pardons and respites, but it makes me rested after a hard day's work if I can find some good excuse for saving a man's life and I go to bed happy as I think how joyous the signing of my name will make him and his family and his friends. And with a happy smile beaming over that care-furrowed face, he signed that name that saved that life. Number 4. His Simplicity and Unostentatiousness 
the simplicity and absence of all ostentation on the part of mr lincoln is well illustrated by an incident which occurred on the occasion of a visit he made to commodore porter at fortress monroe noticing that the banks of the river were dotted with flowers he said commodore tad the pet name for his youngest son who had accompanied him on the excursion is very fond of flowers won't you let a couple of men take a boat and go with him for an hour or two along the banks of the river and gather the flowers look at this picture and then endeavor to imagine the head of a european nation making a similar request in this humble way of one of his subordinates number five a penitent man can be pardoned one day i took a couple of friends from new york upstairs who wished to be introduced to the president it was after the hour for business calls and we found him alone and for once at leisure soon after the introduction one of my friends took occasion to endorse very decidedly the president's amnesty proclamation which had been severely censored by many friends of the administration mr s s approval touched mr lincoln he said with a great deal of emphasis and with an expression of countenance i shall never forget when a man is sincerely penitent for his misdeeds and gives satisfactory evidence of the same he can safely be pardoned and there is no exception to the rule number six keep silence and we'll get you safe across at the white house one day some gentlemen were present from the west excited and troubled about the commissions and omissions of the administration the president heard them patiently and then replied gentlemen suppose all the property you were worth was in gold and you had put it in the hands of blondine to carry across the niagara river on a rope would you shake the cable or keep shouting out to him blondine stand up a little straighter blondine stoop a little more go a little faster lean a little more to the north lean a little more to the south no you would hold your breath as well as your tongue and keep your hands off until he was safe over the government are carrying an immense weight untold treasures are in their hands they are doing the very best they can don't badger them keep silence and we'll get you safe across number seven rebuff to a man with a small claim during a public reception a farmer from one of the border counties of virginia told the president that the union soldiers in passing his farm had helped themselves not only to hay but his horse and he hoped the president would urge the proper officers to consider his claim immediately mr lincoln said that this reminded him of an old acquaintance of his jack chase who used to be a lumberman on the illinois a steady sober man and the best raftsman on the river it was quite a trick twenty-five years ago to take the logs over the rapids but he was skillful with a raft, and always kept her straight in the channel. Finally a steamer was put on, and Jack was made captain of her. He always used to take the wheel going through the rapids. 
One day, when the boat was plunging and wallowing along the boiling current, and Jack's utmost vigilance was being exercised to keep her in the narrow channel, a boy pulled his coat-tail and hailed him with, "'Say, Mr. Captain, I wish you would just stop your boat a minute. I've lost my apple overboard.'" Number 8. The President's Silence Over Criticisms The President was once speaking about an attack made on him by the Committee on the Conduct of the War for a certain alleged blunder, or something worse, in the Southwest, the matter involved being one which had fallen directly under the observation of the officer to whom he was talking, who possessed official evidence, completely upsetting all the conclusions of the committee. "'Might it not be well for me,' queried the officer, "'to set this matter right in a letter to some paper, stating the facts as they actually transpired?' "'Oh, no,' replied the President, "'at least not now.' If I were to try to read, much less answer, all the attacks made on me, this shop might as well be closed for any other business. I do the very best I know how, the very best I can, and I mean to keep doing so until the end. If the end brings me out all right, what is said against me won't amount to anything. If the end brings me out wrong, Ten angels swearing I was right would make no difference. Number 9. Glad of it. On the occasion when the telegram from Cumberland Gap reached Mr. Lincoln that, quote, firing was heard in the direction of Knoxville, end quote, he remarked that he was glad of it. Some person present, who had the perils of Burnside's position uppermost in his mind, could not see why Mr. Lincoln should be glad of it, and so expressed himself. "'Why, you see,' responded the President, "'it reminds me of Mistress Sally Ward, a neighbor of mine, who had a very large family. Occasionally one of her numerous progeny would be heard crying in some out-of-the-way place, upon which Mrs. Ward would exclaim, "'There's one of my children that isn't dead yet!' Number 10 his democratic bearing. The evening before I left Washington, an incident occurred, illustrating very perfectly the character of the man. For two days my large painting had been on exhibition upon its completion in the East Room, which had been thronged with visitors. Late in the afternoon of the second day, the Black Horse Cavalry, escort, drew up as usual in front of the portico, preparatory to the President's leaving for the soldiers' home, where he spent the midsummer nights. While the carriage was waiting, I looked around for him, wishing to say a farewell word, knowing that I should have no other opportunity. Presently I saw him standing halfway between the portico and the gateway leading to the War Department, leaning against the iron fence one arm thrown over the railing, and one foot on the stone coping which supports it, evidently having been intercepted on his way in from the War Department by a plain-looking man who was giving him, very diffidently, an account of a difficulty which he had been unable to have rectified. While waiting, I walked out leisurely to the President's side. 
He said very little to the man, but was intently studying the expression of his face while he was narrating his trouble. When he had finished, Mr. Lincoln said to him, "'Have you a blank card?' The man searched his pockets, but finding none, a gentleman standing near, who had overheard the question, came forward and said, "'Here is one, Mr. President.' Several persons had, in the meantime, gathered round. Taking the card and a pencil, Mr. Lincoln sat down upon the stone coping, which is not more than five or six inches above the pavement, presenting almost the appearance of sitting upon the pavement itself, and wrote an order upon the card to the proper official to examine this man's case. While writing this, I observed several persons passing down the promenade, smiling at each other, at what I presume they thought the undignified appearance of the head of the nation, who, however, seemed utterly unconscious either of any impropriety in the action, or of attracting any attention. To me it was not only a touching picture of the native goodness of the man, but of innate nobility of character, exemplified not so much by a disregard of conventionalities as in unconsciousness that there could be any breach of etiquette or dignity in the manner of an honest attempt to serve or secure justice to a citizen of the Republic, however humble he may be. End of Abraham Lincoln, Ten Anecdotes Read by David Wales